0: CHAPTER Eleven, ALL BY ELECTRICITY Sir, said Captain Nemo, showing me the instruments hanging on the walls of his room, here are the contrivances required for the navigation of the Nautilus. Here, as in the drawing-room, I have them always under my eyes, and they indicate my position and exact direction in the middle of the ocean. Some are known to you, such as the thermometer, which gives the internal temperature of the Nautilus, the barometer, which indicates the weight of the air and foretells the changes of the weather, the hygrometer, which marks the dryness of the atmosphere, the storm-glass, the contents of which, by decomposing, announce the approach of tempests, the compass, which guides my course, the sextant, which shows the latitude by the altitude of the sun, chronometers, by which I calculate the longitude, and glasses, for day and night, which I used to examine the points of the horizon, when the nautilus rises to the surface of the waves. "'These are the usual nautical instruments,' I replied, and I know the use of them. But these others, no doubt, answer to the particular requirements of the nautilus. "'This dial with movable needle is a manometer, is it not?' "'It is actually a manometer,' but by communication with the water, whose external pressure it indicates, it gives our depth at the same time. And these other instruments, the use of which I cannot guess. Here, Professor, I ought to give you some explanations. Will you be kind enough to listen to me? He was silent for a few moments. Then he said, There is a powerful agent, obedient, rapid, easy, which conforms to every use and reigns supreme on board my vessel. Everything is done by means of it. It lights, warms it, and is the soul of my mechanical apparatus. This agent is electricity. Electricity, I cried in surprise. Yes, sir. Nevertheless, Captain, you possess an extreme rapidity of movement which does not agree well with the power of electricity, "'until now, its dynamic force has remained under restraint "'and has only been able to produce a small amount of power.' "'Professor,' said Captain Nemo, "'my electricity is not everybody's. "'You know what seawater is composed of. "'In a thousand grams are found ninety-six and a half percent of water "'and about two and two-third percent of chloride of sodium. "'Then, in a smaller quantity— chlorides of magnesium and of potassium, bromide of magnesium, sulfate of magnesia, sulfate and carbonate of lime. You see, then, that chloride of sodium forms a large part of it. So it is this sodium that I extract from the seawater, and of which I compose my ingredients. I owe all to the ocean. It produces electricity and electricity gives heat, light, motion, and, in a word, life to the Nautilus. But not the air you breathe. Oh, I could manufacture the air necessary for my consumption, but it is useless, because I go up to the surface of the water when I please. However, if electricity does not furnish me with air to breathe, it works at least the powerful pumps that are stored in spacious reserves and which enable me to prolong at need and as long as I will my stay in the depths of the sea it gives a uniform and unintermittent light which the sun does not now look at this clock it is electrical and goes with a regularity that defies the best chronometers i have it divided into 24 hours like the italian clocks because for me there is neither night nor day sun nor moon but only that factitious light that I take with me to the bottom of the sea. Look, just now it is ten o'clock in the morning. Exactly. Another application of electricity. This dial hanging in front of us indicates the speed of the Nautilus. An electric thread puts it in communication with the screw, and the needle indicates the real speed. Look, now we are spinning along with a uniform speed of fifteen miles an hour. "'It is marvellous, and I see, Captain, you were right to make use of this agent "'that takes the place of wind, water, and steam.' "'We have not finished, Monsieur Aronnax," said Captain Nemo, rising. "'If you will allow me, we will examine the stern of the Nautilus.' "'Really, I knew already the anterior part of the submarine boat, "'of which this is the exact division, starting from the ship's head, the dining-room,' Five yards long, separated from the library by a water tight partition, the library, five yards long, the large drawing room, ten yards long, separated from the captain's room by a second water tight partition, the said room, five yards in length, mine, two and a half yards, and lastly, a reservoir of air, seven and a half yards, that extended to the bows. Total length, thirty five yards. "'or one hundred and five feet. "'The partitions had doors that were shut hermetically "'by means of India rubber instruments, "'and they ensured the safety of the Nautilus "'in case of a leak. "'I followed Captain Nemo through the waist "'and arrived at the center of the boat. "'There was a sort of well "'that opened between two partitions. "'An iron ladder, fastened with an iron hook "'to the partition, led to the upper end.' I asked the captain what the ladder was used for. "'It leads to the small boat,' he said. "'What? Have you a boat?' I exclaimed in surprise. "'Of course. An excellent vessel, light and insubmersible, "'that serves either as a fishing or as a pleasure boat. "'But then, when you wish to embark, "'you are obliged to come to the surface of the water.' "'Not at all,' This boat is attached to the upper part of the hull of the Nautilus and occupies a cavity made for it. It is decked, quite watertight, and held together by solid bolts. This latter leads to a manhole made in the hull of the Nautilus that corresponds with a similar hole made in the side of the boat. By this double opening I get into the small vessel. They shut the one belonging to the Nautilus. I shut the other by means of screw pressure. I undo the bolts and the little boat goes up to the surface of the sea with prodigious rapidity. I then open the panel of the bridge, carefully shut till then. I mast it, hoist my sail, take my oars, and I'm off. But how do you get back on board? I do not come back, Monsieur Aronnax. The Nautilus comes to me. By your orders? By my orders. An electric thread connects us. I telegraph to it, and that is enough. Really, I said, astonished at these marvels, nothing can be more simple. After having passed by the cage of the staircase that led to the platform, I saw a cabin six feet long in which Conseil and Ned Land, enchanted with their repast, were devouring it with avidity, Then a door opened into a kitchen nine feet long, situated between the large storerooms. There, electricity, better than gas itself, did all the cooking. The streams under the furnaces gave out to the sponges of platina, a heat which was regularly kept up and distributed. They also heated a distilling apparatus, which, by evaporation, furnished excellent drinkable water. Near this kitchen was a bathroom, comfortably furnished with hot and cold water taps. Next to the kitchen was the berth room of the vessel, sixteen feet long, but the door was shut, and I could not see the management of it, which might have given me an idea of the number of men employed on board the Nautilus. At the bottom was a fourth partition that separated this office from the engine room. A door opened and I found myself in the compartment where Captain Nemo, certainly an engineer of a very high order, had arranged his locomotive machinery. This engine room, clearly lighted, did not measure less than sixty-five feet in length. It was divided into two parts. The first contained the materials for producing electricity, and the second the machinery that connected it with the screw I examined it with great interest, in order to understand the machinery of the Nautilus. "'You see,' said the captain, "'I use Bunsen's contrivances, not Rumkorff's. Those would not have been powerful enough. Bunsen's are fewer in number, but strong and large, which experience proves to be the best. The electricity produced passes forward, where it works by electromagnets of great size, on a system of levers and cog wheels that transmit the movement to the axle of the screw. This one, the diameter of which is nineteen feet, and the thread, twenty-three feet, performs about a hundred and twenty revolutions in a second. And you get, then, a speed of fifty miles an hour. I have seen the Nautilus maneuver before the Abraham Lincoln, and I have my own ideas as to its speed... "'But this is not enough. "'We must see where we go. "'We must be able to direct it to the right, "'to the left, above, below. "'How do you get to the great depths, "'where you find an increasing resistance, "'which is rated by hundreds of atmospheres? "'How do you return to the surface of the ocean? "'And how do you maintain yourselves "'in the requisite medium? "'Am I asking too much?' "'Not at all, professor,' replied the captain, "'with some hesitation.' Since you may never leave this submarine boat, come into the saloon, it is our usual study, and there you will learn all you want to know about the Nautilus. Chapter 12 Some Figures A moment after, we were seated on a divan in the saloon, smoking. The captain showed me a sketch that gave the plan, section, and elevation of the Nautilus. Then he began his description in these words. Here, Monsieur Aronnax, are the several dimensions of the boat you are in. It is an elongated cylinder with conical ends. It is very like a cigar in shape, a shape already adopted in London in several constructions of the same sort. The length of this cylinder from stem to stern is exactly 232 feet, and its maximum breadth is 26 feet, It is not built quite like your long voyage steamers, but its lines are sufficiently long and its curves prolonged enough to allow the water to slide off easily and oppose no obstacle to its passage. These two dimensions enable you to obtain by a simple calculation the surface and cubic contents of the Nautilus. Its area measures 6,032 feet, and its contents about 1,500 cubic yards. That is to say, when completely immersed, it displaces 50,000 feet of water, or weighs 1,500 tons. When I made the plans for this submarine vessel, I meant that nine-tenths should be submerged. Consequently, it ought only to displace nine-tenths of its bulk. That is to say, only to weigh that number of tons. "'I ought not, therefore, to have exceeded that weight, "'constructing it on the aforesaid dimensions. "'The Nautilus is composed of two hulls, "'one inside, the other outside, "'joined by T-shaped irons, which render it very strong. "'Indeed, owing to the cellular arrangement, "'it resists like a block, as if it were solid. "'Its sides cannot yield, it coheres spontaneously.' and not by the closeness of its rivets and its perfect union of the materials enables it to defy the roughest seas these two hulls are composed of steel plates whose density is from 0.7 to 0.8 that of water the first is not less than 2 inches and a half thick and weighs 394 tons the second envelope the keel 20 inches high and 10 thick weighs only sixty-two tons. The engine, the ballast, the several accessories, and apparatus appendages, the partitions and bulkheads weigh nine hundred and sixty-one point sixty-two tons. Do you follow all this? I do. Then, when the Nautilus is afloat under these circumstances, one-tenth is out of the water. Now, if I have made reservoirs of a size equal to this tenth, or capable of holding hundred and fifty tons, and if I fill them with water, the boat, weighing then one thousand five hundred and seven tons, will be completely immersed. That would happen, Professor. These reservoirs are in the lower part of the Nautilus. I turn on taps and they fill, and the vessel sinks that had just been level with the surface. Well, Captain, but now we come to the real difficulty— I can understand your rising to the surface, but diving below the surface, does not your submarine encounter a pressure and consequently undergo an upward thrust of one atmosphere for every thirty feet of water, just about fifteen pounds per square inch? Just so, sir. Then unless you quite fill the Nautilus, I do not see how you can draw it down to those depths. Professor... You must not confound statics with dynamics, or you'll be exposed to grave errors. There is very little labor spent in attaining the lower regions of the ocean, for all bodies have a tendency to sink. When I wanted to find out the necessary increase of weight required to sink the Nautilus, I'd only to calculate the reduction of volume that seawater acquires according to the depth. That is evident. Now... If water is not absolutely incompressible, it is at least capable of very slight compression. Indeed, after the most recent calculations, this reduction is only .000436 of an atmosphere for each 30 feet of depth. If we want to sink 3,000 feet, I should keep account of the reduction of bulk under a pressure equal to that of a column of water of 1,000 feet. The calculation is easily verified. "'Now, I have supplementary reservoirs capable of holding a hundred tons. "'Therefore, I can sink to a considerable depth. "'When I wish to rise to the level of the sea, "'I only let off the water and empty all the reservoirs "'if I want the Nautilus to emerge from the tenth part of her total capacity. "'I had nothing to object to these reasonings. "'I admit your calculations, Captain,' I replied, I should be wrong to dispute them, since daily experience confirms them. But I foresee a real difficulty in the way. What, sir? When you are about a thousand feet deep, the walls of the Nautilus bear pressure of a hundred atmospheres. If, then, just now, you were to empty the supplementary reservoirs, to lighten the vessel and to go up to the surface, the pumps must overcome the pressure of a hundred atmospheres, which is fifteen hundred pounds per square inch. From that a power that electricity alone can give, said the captain hastily. I repeat, sir, that the dynamic power of my engines is almost infinite. The pumps of the Nautilus have an enormous power, as you must have observed when their jets of water burst like a torrent upon the Abraham Lincoln." Besides, I use subsidiary reservoirs only to attain a mean depth of 750 to a 1,000 fathoms, and that with a view of managing my machines. Also, when I have a mind to visit the depths of the ocean five or six miles below the surface, I make use of slower, but not less infallible, means. What are they, Captain? That involves my telling you how the Nautilus is worked. I am impatient to learn... To steer this boat to starboard or port to turn, in a word, following a horizontal plan, I use an ordinary rudder fixed on the back of the stern post and with one wheel and some tackle to steer by. But I can also make the Nautilus rise and sink and sink and rise by a vertical movement by means of two inclined planes fastened to its sides, opposite the center of flotation. Planes that move in every direction, and that are worked by powerful levers from the interior. If the planes are kept parallel with the boat, it moves horizontally. If slanted, the Nautilus, according to this inclination, and under the influence of the screw, either sinks diagonally or rises diagonally, as it suits me. And even if I wish to rise more quickly to the surface, I ship the screw, and the pressure of the water causes the Nautilus to rise vertically, "'like a balloon filled with hydrogen. "'Bravo, Captain! "'But how can the steersman follow the route "'in the middle of the waters? "'The steersman is placed in a glazed box "'that is raised above the hull of the Nautilus "'and furnished with lenses. "'Are these lenses capable of resisting such pressure?' "'Perfectly. "'Glass, which breaks at a blow, "'is nevertheless capable of offering considerable resistance.' During some experiments of fishing by electric light in 1864 in the Northern Seas, we saw plates less than a third of an inch thick resist a pressure of 16 atmospheres. Now the glass that I use is not less than 30 times thicker. Granted, but after all, in order to see, the light must exceed the darkness. And in the midst of the darkness in the water, how can you see... Behind the steersman's cage is placed a powerful electric reflector, the rays from which light up the sea for half a mile in front. Ah, bravo, bravo, Captain! Now I can account for this phosphorescence in the supposed narwhal that puzzled us so. I now ask you if the boarding of the Nautilus and of the Scotia that has made such a noise has been the result of a chance encounter. Quite accidental, sir, I was sailing only one fathom below the surface of the water when the shock came. It had no bad result. None, sir. But now, about your encounter with the Abraham Lincoln. Professor, I am sorry for one of the best vessels in the American Navy, but they attacked me, and I was bound to defend myself. I contented myself, however, with putting the frigate oar to combat. She will not have any difficulty in getting repaired at the next port. "'Ah, Commander, your Nautilus is certainly a marvellous boat.' "'Yes, Professor, and I love it as if it were part of myself. "'If danger threatens one of your vessels on the ocean, "'the first impression is the feeling of an abyss above and below. "'On the Nautilus, men's hearts never fail them. "'No defects to be afraid of, for the double shell is as firm as iron. "'No rigging to attend to, no sails for the wind to carry away.' "'No boilers to burst, no fire to fear, "'for the vessel is made of iron, not of wood. "'No coal to run short, "'for electricity is the only mechanical agent. "'No collision to fear, for it alone swims in deep water. "'No tempest to brave, for when it dives below the water "'it reaches absolute tranquillity. "'There, sir, that is the perfection of vessels. "'And, if it is true, "'that the engineer has more confidence in the vessel than the builder, "'and the builder than the captain himself. "'You understand the trust I repose in my Nautilus, "'for I am at once captain, builder, and engineer. "'But how could you construct this wonderful Nautilus in secret? "'Each separate portion, Monsieur Aronnax, "'was brought from different parts of the globe. "'But these parts had to be put together and arranged.' Professor, I had set up my workshops upon a desert island in the ocean. There my workmen, that is to say, the brave men that I instructed and educated, and myself have put together our Nautilus. Then, when the work was finished, fire destroyed all trace of our proceedings on this island that I could have jumped over if I had liked. Then the cost of this vessel is great. Monsieur Aronnax, an iron vessel cost a hundred and forty-five per tonne, now the Nautilus weighed 1,500. It came, therefore, to sixty-seven thousand five hundred, and eighty thousand and 80,000 more for fitting it up, and about 200,000 with the works of art and the collections it contains. One last question, Captain Nemo. Ask it, Professor. You are rich. Immensely rich, sir, and I could, without missing it, pay the national debt of France. I stared at the singular person who spoke thus. Was he playing upon my credulity? The future would decide that. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.